Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. I said this last night, but uh, I don't think I said it this morning, which is a thank you again for having me here in Gothenburg. It's just my third time here in six years, and uh, I'm getting used to it now. Also, uh, it always touches me when uh, so many people are interested in this practice and going deeper in this practice. Uh, we seem to be living at a time where um, there's so much surface distraction that I think people really crave uh, depth and really crave uh, depth in a way where they're uh, willing to open up and study and, and learn uh, with their whole body. So uh, I hope one of the things you're feeling uh, in a day like today is that we're uh, moving back and forth between uh, working with the body and working with the mind and working in community and studying and it should feel cohesive, I hope. Uh, <clears throat> And we only have two days, so we better stay focused because we have a lot to cover. Um, if it's okay, uh, I'll hold off on questions about the supine meditation because I think the text will start to answer it. Is that okay if we just jump in? Yeah. And can you hear my voice? Okay, back there. Yeah. If you can't, you can always come sit right here. <laughs> So, um, this handout is a text uh, that uh, is translated from Pali. Um, it's called the Anapanasati Sutta. Uh, sutta is the Pali word for the Sanskrit word sutra, which many of you know. Um, uh, sati is the Pali word for smurti, which is the word that gets translated as mindfulness. Um, ana is the word prana, and pana is the word, or apana is the word apana. <laughs> so, in other words, 
This is the sutra of mindfulness of inhaling and exhaling. And um, it comes from a collection called the Majjhima Nikaya. And it begins with Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, remembering something that the Buddha taught. And just a footnote that's really important is that uh, the fellow who we're talking about is not the Buddha. His name is Gotama. Uh, now we call him the Buddha. Um, but his name was Siddhartha Gotama. And one day he was uh, walking and somebody approached him and said, um, they knew who he was, and they said, uh, who are you? And the Buddha asked why they would like to know. And the person said, uh, I want to know how to refer to you and how to remember you. So, are you a god? And the Buddha says, no, I'm not a god. Um, are you somebody with supernatural power? And the Buddha says, no, I'm not anybody with supernatural power. Are you an animal? No, I'm not an animal. Um, are you a spirit? You can see where this is going. And the Buddha says, no, I'm not a spirit. Are you just a regular human being? Says, no, I'm not a regular human being. <laughs> and then the fellow asks, um, well, then how should I refer to you? And the Buddha responds and says, as somebody who is awake. Somebody who is awake. And the word for awake is a bud, um, which means uh, this. Yeah. And so that's how he got the name Buddha. Because people started referring to him as the Buddha, or Buddha, which is a, somebody who is awake. And now we tend to, you know, reify that term and make him sound like someone special. But he thought of himself just as somebody who is awake. Uh, he also often thought of himself as a physician, uh, concerned with suffering. And um, so these are really important details because what he's teaching in this uh, sutta is uh, how to use the body, how to use the breath, which is what we all have, how to use the conditions of our life, the ingredients of our life, to be awake and to heal. So um, once, according to the text, he was staying at Savati, and you can follow along if you want, in the eastern park in the palace of Megira's mother with a large number of well-known elder disciples, including Sariputta and Moggallana, so some of you, uh, if you travel to countries like Burma or Thailand uh, and uh, Sri Lanka, you'll see uh, images of the Buddha with uh, Sariputta on one side of him and Moggallana on the other side of him. And these were two of his very close disciples. They were uh, very good friends. And they met somebody who was studying with the Buddha and asked them some questions, were really inspired by how this person responded, so they decided to go study with the Buddha and did for the rest of their lives. Um, Kasapa was there, uh, Mahakachana was there, Kohita was there, 
Kapina was there. Kapina was the student of the Buddha responsible just for teaching meditation to elder monks. Um, Kunda was there. Anuruddha was there. Anuruddha uh, was uh, a very wealthy cousin of the Buddha um, who also had a similar story of the Buddha, eventually followed the Buddha, and he was with the Buddha as the Buddha was dying. Um, Ananda was there. Do any of you know these people? You've probably heard stories of some of these people. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant. He was also a cousin, a first cousin of the Buddha. And Ananda is the one right now remembering this episode. And um, <clears throat> I've always really connected with Ananda, more than the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha's story is kind of a good story, but it doesn't like resonate deeply with me, but Ananda's really resonates. And Ananda was like the Buddha's right-hand man, and um, whenever, uh, and, and Ananda had a deal with the Buddha, that he would be the Buddha's attendant, as long as if he ever had a question, the Buddha would take time and explain the answer to him. And also, if Ananda ever missed a teaching, the Buddha would record it for a podcast just for <laughs> Ananda. Um, but the most important detail that I've always loved is Ananda is the only one of the Buddha's close disciples that never gets enlightened in the Buddha's lifetime. Yeah. He didn't have his real awakening experience until after the Buddha died, which is also interesting. So, <clears throat> the point here is that the closest disciples of the Buddha are all together at one time. So you could imagine that the Buddha started teaching when he was 30, and he died when he was 80. So this is 50 years of teaching. So you can guess that if there were elders teaching large numbers of new students, it was probably 20 or 30 years into his teaching career. So maybe we could guess that the Buddha is 50 or 60 years old uh, when this occurred. And it says here, on that occasion, Elder monks and nuns were teaching and instructing new monks and nuns, and some elders were teaching and instructing 10 people, some were instructing 20 people, some 30 and 40, and so on. And the new students, I love this part, were realizing great and successive attainments. In other words, things are going really well. <laughs> and there are retreats where things are not going so good. <laughs> and there are retreats where things are going really, really well. So this happens to be one of those retreats where things are going very well. And it also says here that um, they were all together on the 15th day during the full moon night. And traditionally, um, during the rains, so in the wintertime, there would be a rains retreat that was three months long. And at the end of the 15th day of each month, there would be a ceremony that still goes on today where uh, monks and nuns would come and they would atone for their sins. So they would often get in a group and they would speak out loud various things that they had done that were unskillful. And the best part of it is nobody gets punished uh, nobody, you know, loses their Christmas presents. Um, but in a community, people get together and they confess things that they have done that are minor or major 
to the community that are unskillful. And I always think, wouldn't this be so good to do like in your community? Shouldn't we all do this once a month? Have our friends over into our living room, sit around, and just go around in a circle with no feedback and just say out loud something that you've done that's really unskillful that you need to get off your chest. But not do it like once a year, but do it like every month. Every month, one night, get together, sit still for maybe 30 minutes, a group of people, and then go around the circle and just share. Oh, this, I said something to so-and-so, and now I realize that was really stupid. Uh, that, that must have really hurt them. Um, and then after you say it, uh, everybody would bow to you for having the confidence to, to say something. And that's it. Nobody gives you feedback. Nobody sends you an email. Oh, I loved what you said. <laughs> um, so, this is, so this is what's happening, okay? Are you getting the scene a little bit? Okay, so this ceremony was just completed. So you can imagine that everyone's feeling kind of tender. Yeah? And, um, and then the Buddha looks over the silent community. So obviously this is finished and everyone's really quiet. And the Buddha looks over the silent community and says, I'm pleased with this practice. I am pleased deep in my heart with this practice. Therefore, put more energy into it. Attaining what you haven't attained, reaching what hasn't been reached, and seeing what you haven't seen yet. And this is, I think, the job of a good teacher, right? They wait for the student to be relatively tender, relatively calm, and then they say to them, okay, now go further. Go further. Don't rest here. Because, you know, some students, they get kind of calm, and then they just think, oh, I can plateau here for a little while. And it's the job of a teacher to kind of see when that's happening and go, good, there's some peace. Now use this place of feeling calm to look more clearly at what's going on, to see what you can't see. So then the Buddha says, not only do I think everybody should go deeper, but he says, I will stay right here in Savati all the way through to the end of this retreat and we'll practice together. So you can imagine people are probably pretty happy. They're on retreat, they just confessed, the Buddha is saying they're doing a great job, and then he says, not only are you doing a great job, but actually I'm going to stay in retreat with you, and we're all going to practice together. Um, then, people from the countryside started hearing that the Buddha was staying in Savati. So this is a wandering monk who's now saying, okay, now I'm actually going to stay in this one place. And all kinds of new people started coming. And they all came to study with all these elder monks. And so can you imagine like you're in a park or a grove, not so far from a city. The Buddha always taught just outside of cities. And the Buddha is teaching. And then imagine all these people start hearing that the Buddha is giving teachings and they all start coming. And then so all the elders who were teaching small groups, now those groups are getting... Uh, bigger. And um, on that occasion, um, the Buddha then says to the group, 
Monks, this community, uh, this assembly, is without frivolous talk. In other words, uh, people have given gossip a break. Does anybody here do gossip? <laughs> no, I didn't think so. So we're, we're okay for going forward here, though. Um, the assembly is established on pure heartwood. Um, the word in Pali for this is Sara, which I always think is the same as the name Sarah. Does anybody have that name here? Uh, no. Okay. Sara, uh, S-A-R-A, refers to the innermost part of a tree. So the, the, the deepest core of a tree, which is translated here as heartwood. So it's the heart of a tree. And he's saying, the community here, now that you're settled, now that you've confessed or repented places where you've been unskillful or inappropriate, um, now the community, oh, and you've given up gossip, now the community is based on heartwood. You're deep like the core of a tree. We talked about this last night, didn't we? Um, Since this is such an assembly, it's an assembly worthy of offerings, hospitality, gifts, and anjali. Uh, Anjali is a traditional practice when you make an offering of putting your fingers together like this. Sometimes there's a bow. Uh, It literally means a prayer. It's actually where you get the word patanjali. It's a fallen prayer. Pat is to fall. So Anjali is a, is a prayer. Um, and then he goes on, and I'm not going to get into detail here, but he goes on to say that when you have a community that's practicing this way, it benefits other people, and so it's worthy of support from the larger community. In other words, don't be shy about receiving support. Then he says, in this community of monks, there are monks who have uh, transformed the five lower fetters or hindrances. The word is klesha. And the five uh, hindrances are um, sensual craving, so always clinging for sensory satisfaction, uh, anger, so they've transformed anger. Doesn't mean for good, but it means you have the ability to really see and transform these things. Uh, the third one is clinging to identity. The fourth one is doubt. And the fifth one, which is one of my favorite, is clinging to religious practice. <laughs> clinging to religious practice. <clears throat> um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the section that says mindfulness of breathing in and out which is page three. Does everybody see that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, now you can imagine there's many people gathered and he needs to give some instruction. So here is his instruction on meditation on breathing. And here's how it goes. He asks a question. How is mindfulness of breathing in and out of great fruit and great benefit when cultivated? It's a rhetorical question. And then he says, uh, having gone to the wilderness, a foot of a tree 
or an empty building, one sits down with legs crossed and spine erect. Okay? So, you're suffering, you're having a hard time, you're lonely, or you have anxiety, or um, you love someone, they've died, uh, or you've uh, lost a relationship. I mean, I could go through a whole list, right? How do you work with it? What do you do? Well, the Buddha is saying here, go to the wilderness or to the foot of a tree. Nowadays, everybody goes to a meditation center. He doesn't say that here. Um, or an empty building and sit down with your legs crossed and your spine erect. Then, establish mindfulness to the forefront Always attentive, she breathes in with mindfulness and breathes out with mindfulness. So mindfulness is characterized by a mind that is non-reactive. Okay? It's attentive and doesn't have much commentary going on. Okay? So you know when you're looking at something and you're just going on and on about it? Does everybody know this? No? I've had this experience before. Um, so mindfulness is an attention that's non-reactive. It's non-reactive, and it's characterized by commentary being in the background, not in the foreground. So there might be some thinking, but it's not in the foreground. It falls to the background. And in the foreground is just the breathing body. Okay. <clears throat> Breathing in, so now this is the first instruction. Remember I said there were 16? So here comes number one. Breathing in long, she knows I'm breathing in long. Breathing in short, she knows I'm breathing in short. In other words, if your breath is long, don't make it short. If your breath is short, don't make it long. If you feel that when you're breathing, it's really constricted in your chest, uh, don't change it. Let it be shallow in your chest. So what happens all the time is we notice something about the breathing and right away we don't like it. And we think we should be breathing a different way. And the Buddha is saying that's not how we begin mindfulness of the breath. We become, mindfulness, we become mindful of the breath in whatever way the breath presents itself. So put up your hand if you were manipulating your breath in the meditation practice. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to leave the breath alone, isn't it? As soon as we notice something, we start messing with it. Now the thing is, and this is why I think the, the, the successive teachings are important, is that if you can start to leave your breath alone, you start learning non-attachment. But if you think you can just jump into working with mental states and leaving anger alone, good luck. It's really hard. So we start physically with the body. Feeling our breathing and just trusting that the body knows how to breathe. If the breath is long, let it be long. If it's short, let it be short. But 
we have so many emotions that are unprocessed. We have grief that's unprocessed. We have trauma that we haven't processed. And when you have these kind of holding patterns that are unprocessed or semi-processed, they're like a screen between attention and the breathing. And it becomes hard to trust our body because we're a little bit avoidant or scared of what's in the body. We don't trust the body. We don't trust that the body is just going to breathe. And so um, part of being able to trust that the body can breathe is that we have enough courage that we uh, start to have some confidence that if um, emotions or sensations are going to arise, that we'll be able to stay in our body and our breathing. Does this make sense a little bit? Um, and often we might think, oh, I don't have any big emotions or things I have to deal with. I'm, I'm pure. Well, actually, watch what happens. You start combing through your breathing. So, first teaching, if the breath is long, let it be long. The breath is short, let it be short. Second teaching, breathing out long, she knows I'm breathing out long. And breathing out short, she knows I'm breathing in short. Sorry. And breathing out short, she knows I'm breathing, that should say, out short. Third teaching. She trains herself. Breathing in, I experience the whole body. And breathing out, I experience the whole body. Okay? So watch what happens. You start noticing your breathing in one area. And then you start noticing that it's actually, even though the breath is in one small area, you can actually feel that your whole body is breathing. And not only do you feel that your whole body is breathing, you really feel that there is a body. You feel your physicality. And I always say to people, asana practice is a psychological practice. And sitting meditation is a physical practice. If you don't think sitting meditation is a physical practice, you probably don't sit. <laughs> but when you sit, you start feeling all kinds of sensations. Is this happening to anybody? Yeah. And yoga students hate sitting. Yoga students and dancers. And the reason is, is because uh, yoga students and dancers, when they feel sensations in their body, they like moving the sensations and stretching into them and getting out of anything that's uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but in sitting meditation practice, what happens is we're allowing sensations to come into awareness and to change. And a lot of times, um, uh, we don't see that there's actually a gap between the sensation arising and what we think we need to do about it. Usually those things are like spring-loaded in each other. There's a sensation, and then there's a whole story we have about that sensation. And what we're starting to see in mindfulness practice is that we can open up this space a little bit and see that there's actually space between sensations that we call the body and what we think we need to do about it and our stories about the body. 
And we're trying to create that gap. We're trying to aim into that gap. And this is what mindfulness practice is doing. It's slowing down the mental process to see how the mind and body are in relationship with each other. You see? And then the Buddha says, um, breathing in, I experience the whole body. Breathing out, I experience, breathing out, I experience the whole body. She trains herself. Breathing in, I calm bodily formations. And breathing out, I calm bodily formations. Uh, so the words are akaya, which means body, and sankara, or if you uh, know Sanskrit, uh, sanskara. Um, so bodily sanskaras. What does that mean? So um, this is a very interesting word, sanskara. How many of you have heard this word before? Oh, great. Let's say it together. So uh, some Skara. Yeah. So uh, sum is where you get uh, two different English words. Uh, one is sum, like S-U-M in mathematics, which is the same as samastitihi, which means equal yeah, or a total. Yeah. And sum, through Latin, you end up with the word um, com, C-O-M, like in community. To come, to come together. Um, and skara is actually where you get the English word scar, um, which comes from the word kur, which, mean, which is where you get the word create, which is also where you get the word karma. It's really interesting. So there's a lot of words in here. So, so it's the coming together of karma and how the coming together of karma leaves a scar. Okay, so in the body. Okay. So what that means is your body is not just your body. <laughs> okay. First of all, your body is mostly made out of non-human elements like air and fire and water. How much of your body is water? 80%. 80% something. Um, <clears throat> I guess it depends how dehydrated you are. Depends how much hot yoga you do. <laughs> um, so, our body also um, comes into this life with a genetic code. You have certain color eyes, you have certain moods, you have certain brain structure, you have certain color skin. Right? Nobody comes in with a clean slate. And in the olden days, they had, before genetics, they had a term called past lives, which is the same as genetics. I used to have a professor who used to always say, um, we have nature and nurture, and in India, they had past lives to get your parents off the hook. <laughs> so That's the category to stop blaming your parents. Um, so, uh, your age and your gender and how your culture has taught you how to be in your gender and your socioeconomic class, your community, your education, uh, what you eat, how you eat, um, uh, 
everything. Have you been in rehab? How many toxins you've ingested? Like all of this stuff makes up the sangskaras of our body. You see? Our body has very deep grooves. And these grooves are also informed by our ancestors. Right? If you have ancestors that had particular psychological patterns or physiological patterns or certain illnesses, they all manifest in your body too in different degrees. And so when you practice, you're also practicing for your ancestors. You see? Because you actually change your genes when you practice. And when you work with your reactivity, you actually change the structure of your psychology and your physiology. We all know this, right? So, the Buddha is saying that when you sit still, all of these habits of the body are going to arise. But remember that the habits of the body that are going to arise, this is really important for those of you that are psychotherapists, are not your problem. (laughs) They're actually all the weight of genetics, of all your ancestry, showing up in the present moment in your body. And this is called a sangskara. And the positive side of sangskaras, which nowadays we call neuroplasticity, I love that word, makes me sound so cool when I say it, um, is that they're totally malleable. So you have all of these grooves in your body, all of these sangskaras, but they're changeable. You can change them. Maybe you can't change every single one, but you, you can work with them. So I find that this is a really uh, kind of uh, positive, uplifting vision of psychology, which is that most of your problems are not your fault. And yes, it's true that so much of the issues that we deal with have to do with the first few years of life and the way we've made attachment and bonded or not bonded, but that's not the whole story. And not only that, the way we have or haven't been cared for as young children is also really influenced by how our caregivers were cared for as young children and how their caregivers, you see? And there's a point where when we have uh, sensations arise in the body, we need to stop making them so personal. Oh, this is my sacrum, my knee. I'm such a bad meditator. I'm never going to be a good meditator. I'm not good at anything. I'm in a gym. I never even could do gym. I'll always be fat. I hope I stop eating gluten so I can lose weight and be on Instagram like everybody else in my yoga studio. Have you had these thoughts before? No. Okay, well. Welcome to my mind. So, let's go back to the basics. You're breathing. You know you're breathing. And as you stay really connected with the breath, you start to feel that it's actually the whole body that's breathing. 
not just this one spot. Do you feel like the whole body is breathing? And then as you feel like the whole body is breathing, sensations arise, the sanskaras arise, different physical patterns arise. Some of them, most of them you probably don't understand. You just feel them below language as sensations. And then um, you're going to use your breath to calm them. So what tends to happen is what most of us do. I guess I'm just speaking for myself today, but what I do. Following the breath, following the breath, not so distracted, following the breath, the sensations arise, and then I start getting really interested in the sensation. Like, oh, God, my stomach is feeling kind of strange, and maybe it's because I feel nervous, because of what, you know, somebody said to me yesterday, and wish they didn't say that and I should talk to my therapist about this but I can't go to my therapist because it's so expensive and I'm just a yoga teacher and uh, I don't really even need therapy anyways I'm just going to talk to my friends about it on Snapchat <laughs> and uh, no actually I won't yeah. do you know what I'm talking about we get so into like all the story around it so here is the lesson. The lesson is, in meditation practice, we are not interested in the content of what's arising. This is the biggest difference between psychology and meditation. In psychology, when content arises, we're really interested in the content. What's it related to? Uh, when did you learn it? Uh, how does it manifest in relationships? Right? We're very interested in the content. In meditation practice, we're not interested in the content. We don't go into the content. Something arises, and we just feel it's arising, and we use the breath to calm the sensations down, but we don't go off into the content. It's not that we're trying to repress it. It's that at the beginning, we're trying to stay at the level of sensation. Stay at the level of sensation calming the sanskaras, calming the sanskaras, which, of course, create new sanskaras, more skillful sanskaras. So, some sensations arise that are like the sensation maybe of um, sadness, and you start to feel a little bit sad, and then you have a story that's mostly unconscious that you don't really like this sadness, so immediately you go get a cigarette. Immediately you get a cigarette. And then when you have a cigarette, what's the best thing to do when you have a cigarette? Have a beer. <laughs> right? Or like, what do you drink here? Beer? You have a beer. Okay. So then, you have a beer, you're smoking your beer, and then like you get a little bit drunk, and then, like, the sadness goes away. And it's so convenient. So now you've learned this really good pattern. So that when you feel a little bit sad, if you just go have a cigarette and a beer, you don't feel so sad. But what happens the next morning? Yeah. You wake up. You don't know the person next to you. <laughs> you don't have any cigarettes. And, like... All the sadness is back again. 
<laughs> do you do this in Sweden? <laughs> Okay, <clears throat> so uh, last section here. Um, this is the this is kind of like the benefit is that if you keep staying with the breath, allowing sensations to change, and you don't get caught in those sensations. In other words, you don't get caught like trying to go in or change the sensations. You just keep staying with the breath that's calming whatever's happening in the body. Can you imagine doing this? Just keep staying with it. Then the Buddha says, something arises called pity, which it's too bad that it sounds like the word pity, <laughs> but it actually means joy, okay? Or happiness. So, that's kind of interesting. So right there, you may be in the middle of painful sensation. In the middle of painful sensation. Staying with the sensation, calming your reactivity, staying with it, feeling the sensation, just letting it in. And right in the middle of it, joy bubbles up. Pity bubbles up. Joy bubbles up. Now, about this joy. Um, for most people... When this happens, <clears throat> oh, let me also just back up. And you know, for those of you that are vipassana people, um, usually you don't get taught a lot of this stuff, and Zen people don't get taught a lot of this stuff either. So it's really good to see sometimes some of these sequences because <coughs> you can recognize them in yourself and other people, and they don't always happen linearly. Sometimes we go through the whole thing in a strange order. Uh, but follow along to the map, because this part's interesting, is that out of nowhere, you're just staying with the breath. It feels like such hard work or mundane work. Oh, God, just come back to the breath, come back to the breath. And then out of nowhere, joy arises. And for some people, the joy is very, very subtle. And you don't even realize it until after it's gone. And I've had this before on retreat, where I get up from the sitting, never even thought of any of this. I was just sitting and staying with my breath. And going for a walk, and then suddenly just feeling like so open. Just, not, it's not dramatic, just so open. Or I remember one time I was on retreat. <clears throat> I was about 22. And um, I said to myself, Michael, this sit... You should try this sometime. This set, I want you to stay with your breathing and don't go to anything else. Like, just try for the whole period of meditation just to stay with your breathing and don't leave. Whatever you do, don't leave. And this was after a few years of doing retreats and being like, you know, you all know this, right? You, you sit and like for two minutes you're meditating, but the rest of the time you're just like off somewhere. So I said, okay, I'm actually going to try this. And I sat and stayed with the breath no matter what. Stayed, 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 stayed. And then the session ended. I got up. I went to walk to go do my work job. And I was just totally overcome with happiness. It was a happiness that I never felt in my life because it didn't have to do with anything. It wasn't a happiness because of something. It was just a happiness that arose 
with no uh, cause that had content that was recognizable. So what's being talked about here is really interesting. But some warnings, okay? When this is happening, it often shows up with some energy in the body. A lot of people, when they first experience pity, they feel tingling in their mouth, or they feel really hot in their hands, or they feel some kind of energy because the joy is not mental joy. It actually comes out of the body and it's not great when it happens in tents for people because it really freaks people out. Because what happens is, is you're just staying with, staying with, staying with the breath and then sometimes people just get like a shot of energy but they don't realize yet it's joy. It's just like tons of heat. You know? And then the mind comes in and goes, oh my God, I'm scared or I'm going to faint or um, um, uh, what else happens? Uh, oh, and then some people are like, oh my God, it's Kundalini. And like, I'm so enlightened and now I can like write a book. <laughs> Um, it doesn't happen for everybody like this. Um, but it's good to know that if you really get concentrated, so absorbed in breathing, and you let sensations keep changing, and you don't get hooked by the content, when you stay in that zone, this pity arises. This kind of like joy begins to arise that A, doesn't have to do anything with anything, except that you're absorbed, and B, um, has usually some kind of energetic thing in the body associated with it that can be disorienting. I don't want to idealize this, because in my experience working with students, it's not always like so happy. When people really get like a shot of it, they're just like, whoa. <laughs> um, and it usually doesn't last very long. It lasts for just, for some people it can be like 10 seconds and for some people it can be like three or four minutes. Because what happens is the sanskaras, do you remember what those are? The habits, they come back and figure out how to take over the situation. Because the self, do you know what that is? Yeah, so like the me story just had an experience of being suspended. And it's interesting to notice that when the me story got suspended, happiness arose. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So then the me figures out how to hijack that to make it happen to me. And that's what ends the pity, you see? So like you're happy, but without you. You're, there's just happy. And then so you are like, what's going on that there's a happiness without me? This should happen to me. <laughs> and so it comes in and tries to figure out how to own it in some way, which is um, narcissism. In psychoanalysis, this is just fundamental narcissism, the root narcissism, which is to exist. We want to exist somehow. We're scared of not existing. 
And maybe what's scary about energetic things that happen around the joy in meditative practice is that you didn't create it. And it dissolves you for a second. So then you're going to figure out, I like this or I don't like this. And if I like it, how do I make it like something that happened to me? Like, so it's like a badge I can wear. Oh, look at me. I was like so happy in my meditation. <laughs> um, or we do the opposite, which is, I don't like that. That was really intense. Uh, meditation's not really for me. I shouldn't really be meditating um, because, uh, you know, when you make up some kind of story. Uh, or that scared me, you know. This happens to a lot of people. They're like, whoa, what just happened? And then they're like, I'm scared of this. And they, because they don't have a teacher, they never get to talk about it with anybody. So uh, those are the first five uh, mindfulness trainings. And I want to talk a little bit more about joy, but I think this is a good time to have a break. Um, <clears throat> what time do we go to? 3.30. Do you want to have a break and then have some questions? Or do you want to do a few questions now and then have a break? Questions? The trick question? Okay, let's have a few questions. Can I turn on the fan while we do the questions? Would that be okay with Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Are you feeling heat? And I'm confused. Um, yeah, you know, I was saying last night that um, a lot of young people, especially, I think especially people who do a lot of drugs, um, but it can also be, you know, being in nature a lot too can do this, where um, they don't have any kind of practice and they don't have any teachings and they don't have any community support and they stumble into some of these things. And it really is a disorienting for them. Um, so they have a lot of the same insights as a meditator, but they don't have any structure to kind of hold it together. So uh, it's really good to combine practice and the teaching together. It's really important. Okay, so questions. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Hot yoga? You hot yoga. Oh, did I? I need to ask the question. What do you think of the different schools of yoga? Because, to be honest, it's kind of disorienting that, you know, some of the stuff that I trust for my teachers to teach me can hurt me. Yeah. So we have a great degree of trust, you know, in, in the schools that we belong to. Yes. And I always think it's part of, of yoga itself. So, do you have a view of, you know, schools that maybe have gone, you know, down the wrong path or, or yeah. warnings or... <clears throat> I don't. I'll keep my mouth shut. <laughs> All I'll say is that I think when you have a teacher, you should have some healthy distrust 
and watch them very carefully and uh, check in all the time if what you're learning connects with your experience. And once in a while, they may be on a path where they're a few steps ahead of you in terms of maybe technique or insight or whatever. So they might be teaching something that you haven't experienced. So you have to just test it out a little bit. Oh, does this connect with me? Is this good for me? When I give them feedback, do they respond? And be asking these questions so we have a healthy... There's trust, there's distrust, and they're both healthy. Back and forth. Yes. You have to speak up very loud. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I noticed when I thought I'm sitting in the blind zone, I think, closing my eyes, and I So that's really common, really, really common. She's saying, uh, yeah, when she's uh, lying down, um, she feels like she's way over on the right. Yeah. Um, even though on the outside, she probably wasn't. Um, and uh, we have all kinds of asymmetrical sanskaras. Um, some of them are neurological. Um, and it's very, very common to have those feelings. And it tends to be that they straighten out over time. So uh, it's interesting to notice that the longer you stayed with the breath, the more it evened out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, breathing uh, deepens the way, at least when, when you speak now, yeah. um, when I focus on my breath at the yeah. same time, I, I can do both, right? Uh-huh. Which is when when we are meditating it's not so it, it's like you can actually listen to your mind at the same time when uh -huh. you are concentrating on your breath uh, the difference is for me anyway that i can uh, watch my mind a little more mm -hmm. uh, focused in a way but to do the same thing uh, to do these two things at the same time yeah is tricky because yeah. it's sort of cheating takes the full focus from the breath you can't, you can't get into much thinking and really feel the sensations of the breath. It's one or the other. You can't do both things. So if you're trying to do multitask, you're pro they're both probably suffering. Yeah, so what, going very quickly. Yeah, so, so I said this last night. Um, do you remember I talked about chitta vrittis last night? It's yeah. kind of worth repeating a little bit. It's important to understand this word vritti because it often gets translated as fluctuation. So, so chitta is your attention span, right? Did I talk about that yesterday? Chitta is your attention, okay? And vritti, it's not that your attention fluctuates because there's nothing wrong with that. It's when your attention starts doing this. 
it hooks into something and it starts spinning in a loop. And you know the loops that I'm talking about. We all have like the work loop, the family loop, the sex loop, the money loop. Do you know these loops? Mm -hmm. And usually you only have like five. <laughs> and, and you just plug new content into it every few years. But it's like the same story, you know? So, <clears throat> so what happens is when you, when you start staying with the breath and you, and you leave that loop, you hook out of that loop and you come back to your breathing, what happens is, is that loop quickly loses its power. It doesn't loop anymore. And the, the, the thoughts go into the background. This is very important. The breath is in the foreground. The thoughts go to the periphery. But the thoughts do not stop. Does everybody hear this? The thoughts don't stop once in a while. Once in a while they stop, but mostly they don't stop. What happens is they don't loop and they don't become foreground. Okay? The breath gets so foreground that the thoughts are just, oh, they're there. But like they're just coming and going and we don't think about them. Okay? Because what happens is a lot of meditators, they turn thinking into like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And then they try not to think, which creates so much stress and so much suffering that it's better just to think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So there's different techniques for working with pain. But if we're to stay with this technique, then pain arises, we're noticing the breath, and pain gets quite dominant sometimes and in the way of the breath. So we're noticing pain, we're staying with the breath, and then we're noticing that it's not just pain, it's a whole samskara. Like, we have so many reactions to the pain. You notice this? Like you start feeling pain in the knee and it's like, oh my God, I'm never going to walk again. I have knee cancer. They're gonna, and you can picture the ambulance coming, people carrying you out. She died of knee pain in the workshop. You know, I'm never going to walk again. And you can picture like, you know, getting one of the wheelchairs and being taken out because of your meditation injury. <laughs> So, um, amputation. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's just pain in the knee. So, how can you calm the reactivity using your breath around the pain and just let it be there? It's pain, let it be there. It's okay. Yeah, we're only sitting for 20 minutes. There's nothing about the pain that's going to hurt you. And yogis right now are just like, oh my god, this is so bad. I bet you he's not even vegetarian. <laughs> but actually, uh, it's okay. There's pain. We All day we have pain. 
So now we sit still and we start learning how to work with it a little bit. And the interesting thing is, the more you learn how to work with the reactivity of your pain, the more compassion you can have for somebody else who's in pain. Because you know how to be with pain without jumping out of it. And then uh, something painful happens to your heart. Oh, I can be one with this. I can be with this. I mean, the fact is, is we're aging. And you're going to experience pain in your body. So uh, let's learn how to work with it a little bit. We have all day where we're doing all these asanas that feel amazing. So if you're sitting and once in a while there's some discomfort, it's okay. It's all, your daily life is like this. There's discomfort. And if you feel like every single time you sit it's exactly the same pain, then ask questions and we can fix the posture. Yes? I'm wondering a little bit about this. I mean, when we start to discover that there is a loop and maybe like a big loop, like I yeah. always choose this in my lap, yeah. or I always do this, yeah. or it seems like there is this place where we actually need to be keep on doing it, but starting to get conscious of it, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it seems like it, I, in my experience, it's like in my life, and it's like what what choices I make and so on. It always seems like. I always I say I'm never gonna do it again, yeah. <laughs> and then I, I make the same choice yeah, of course, one more, of course. one more time, yeah. and then maybe there's this realization. And yeah, I it's slow. Talk a little bit about this, just like in this, because it's kind of this decision making of I want to change it, I want to, yeah. but still, and and like kind of trying to create this gap and this change. Yeah, and then yeah. how to relate in this phase of actually wanting that, but. St- still being yeah I mean there are some habits we have that are really easy to change the sanskara doesn't have such momentum right so you might have some habit that you notice like oh I never put the root of my index finger on the floor in upward dog and then you start working it and then it's okay and then maybe you have another habit like um, I don't like the way my body looks so I'm just going to eat the smallest amount of food I can so that I can look like a certain way. So that habit, you can't just look at it and go, oh God, that's bad, I'm not going to do that anymore. That habit might take some really deep investigation and some real discomfort. Like, wow, what is my body and what do I really look like? And This is really like more painful than it's worth. And then we start to investigate that. And then that maybe is like the rest of your life you're working on that. The rest of your life. It's like quitting smoking, right? If you can quit smoking for one day, you can quit smoking. But like, it's not that simple. right? I'm sorry if anyone here smokes. Keep smoking. It's... <laughs> Never mind. So, okay, last comment or question, and then we're going to have a little little break. I have a question about uh, the concept of uh, fullness and uh, yeah. emptiness or callousness, uh, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, maybe correlating to also about uh, in meditation, 
the, the viewer in meditation, or the meditator and the, the object of meditation, and um, how it can be so different in, uh, in uh, linguistic or, or terminology in, uh, in, uh, from Hindu tradition, yogic practice, that they say, talk about the Purna, the, full, the fullness of being enlightened or, or yeah. being here, being aware, being mindful and in, yeah. in the qualessness and uh, anatta of uh, mm-hmm. Buddhism yeah. and how they, they, the core or the, the essence of it for me it looks the same but uh-huh. so different standpoints yeah. talking about being not the self and the total self or the big self yeah. you even hear it in uh, Mahayana sometimes the, yeah. in Zen the big self connected with the big self yeah. or the yeah. non-duality of that yeah how do you view that? Can we do it after the break? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to ask the most difficult question right before we have a break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Let's, no, that's okay. That's okay. Let's go have a cigarette. <laughs> and then we'll discuss emptiness. <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.